It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. So, Dan, before we get started today, we just wanted to take a moment to let everyone know about something new from Bloomberg. Do you want to hear what it is? Go for it. Well, starting now, you can actually use our iOS app or Bloomberg's Google Chrome extension to scan any news story on any website, instantly revealing relevant news and market data from Bloomberg and other sources related to the companies and the people you're reading about. So really, no matter where you're reading the news, you can bring the power of Bloomberg's news and data with you. It's pretty amazing. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension on the Chrome store to try it out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com backslash lens. Donald Trump has set his sights on what many economists see as an impossible goal, getting the U.S. economy to grow at a sustained rate of 3% to 4%, up from the current pace of around 2%. The president has pledged to get there with a mix of deep tax cuts, deregulation, and renegotiated trade deals. At the same time, he's talked about limiting immigration. That last category could prove crucial. In fact, while much of the developed world is stuck in a low growth rut, one nation stands out because a boom in immigration is fueling economic expansion. Today on Benchmark, we journey all the way to New Zealand, where a flood of immigrants has stoked torrid growth. What lessons does that hold for the United States? Let's find out. I'm Scott Landman, an economics editor for Bloomberg News in Washington. And I'm Daniel Moss, executive editor for Global Economics at Bloomberg in New York. So, Dan, I I know this is a particularly difficult podcast for you to do. I am here Uh, under duress. (laughs) Growing up in Australia, Dan, how would you describe the attitude of Australians toward New Zealand? Ever been to France? Uh, Yes, I have. Ever heard them talk about Belgium? Uh, I don't think so. Ever heard someone from France talk about a resident of Quebec? Um, No, but tell me more. (laughs) I think the the listener can get the general picture. You guys probably look down on them. I would say that sounds like the way you're the, what you're trying to say, Dan. Is that right? Well, I wouldn't be quite so avert. <laughs> well, uh, on that note, since we're off to such a great start, why don't we bring in Tracy? Tracy's Withers. been putting up with this for twenty years. <laughs> Let's bring in Tracy Withers, our colleague in New Zealand. He's. Uh, spent almost two decades covering the economy of his native land as a reporter in Wellington. Uh, Tracy, thanks for joining us today, or actually it's tomorrow where you are, right? Thanks, Scott. Dan, how are you? Happy to be here. 
without getting into the details of the of any kind of rivalry with Australia, can can you fill us in a bit about New Zealand's earliest history? Uh, I I think I, I'm struck by some of the similarities to the United States in that Europeans did take the land from the people who were there first. You know, they were the immigrants in a way. How would you uh, talk about it? Yes, Europeans started uh, colonising New Zealand in the early 19th century and, and the, the British took it over in uh, 1840 or assumed sovereignty with a treaty with the local Maori tribes. Uh, you know, it had been discovered as a nation by the Polynesian navigators centuries before. Uh, and as you as you're saying, it's uh, there are those similarities. Um, since then, of course, the, you know the, the relationship with the Maori has, has evolved pretty calmly. There's been there were early clashes, there's still squabbles over land entitlement stemming right the way back to that early treaty. But mostly in modern day New Zealand, the two races are really totally intermingled. Does that treaty, Tracy, as opposed to just a complete appropriation explain a lot? Well, there's certainly um, different interpretations of the document, uh, which are continually being tested, uh, as I said, in, in modern-day New Zealand with, with issues around rights to land. This government has been um, settling with some of the Maori tribes on some issues. It's, it's, it underpins a lot of uh, how New Zealand's legislation is written. It's, it is quite important that, uh, that the Maori rights in, in a lot of areas are recognised, and, and the governments of, of the day um, accept that now, as I think most Kiwis do. Now, as that's underpinned a lot of the history, how, how did we get to the point in the present day where New Zealand has seen such a desirable place to live, to buy property, and so on. How much did Lord of the Rings have to do with it? Certainly, I think Lord of the Rings is a, is a, a window into how beautiful New Zealand it can be. Uh, it's, there's lots of space here, clearly. Uh, there's green, bush, and all those sort of attributes that that movie portrayed. But... Um, I think for a lot of people that's a nice makes it a nice reason to visit New Zealand. Maybe not necessarily stay. I think you know you look to other things an immigrant would checklist: security, stable government, good public services. As we discussed, you know, racially pretty tolerant, and and a country that's prepared to sort of you know stand its ground and and stand up in the world. Like for example, our campaign to be nuclear free, which put us offside with the, our alliance with the United States for some, some years. So all of those things make a you know, pretty compelling case for immigrants who may be coming from places where there's geopolitical tension and, and, and you know, risks around security. Let's talk about the economy now, since so many people are coming to New Zealand that is helping fuel economic growth. We've actually seen 3% GDP growth in New Zealand for the last several years, kind of at the average pace. That just happens to be the goal that Trump administration is talking about achieving here, although a lot of people are really skeptical about it, especially since the attitude toward immigration has been more toward limiting than welcoming. For New Zealand, where would where do you think the growth rate would be without uh, such strong immigration in the last few years? Well, you're correct. Um, since um, the start of 2014, I think the economy's grown about 9%. The population has gone up 
5%, a little bit more. So uh, the per capita GDP numbers are, are down in the low 1, 1%, 1.1% a year over the last three years. So there's no doubt that that immigration boost has, has uh, underpinned the, the, the growth you know, through demand for housing, spending by the, the new people and so forth. Given the benefits to the New Zealand economy, and admittedly it's much, much smaller than, say, the UK economy, or let alone the US economy, as a New Zealander, what do you make of the immigration debates that have roiled UK and US politics in the past 12 months? We don't um, have a difficulty with uh, new people coming here. In a lot of industries, we, we need the talent um, from... The dairy industry struggles sometimes. Our, our biggest industry in terms of the primary production struggles to get people to milk cows. We've got in, in parts of the country Filipino families milking cows. Um, massive earthquake in Christchurch in 2011. A lot of the rebuilding, which is still going on, was done by um, British Irishmen Irish people coming down and, and helping chipping in building houses and, and new commercial buildings. So we didn't have the the trained people to do those sorts of things, and that's still the case in a lot of more sophisticated industries, software development, film, etc. So um, we need people. It can bring with it um, tensions and um, put pressure on infrastructure. Um, I, I guess it, it, relative to what's happening in, in other parts of the world, it, it's, it's not too severe. So when you think about the number of people that have come into New Zealand, you're, you're talking about the population has increased about 5% in the last uh, three years, I think. Um, I saw that you wrote that the population grew about 2% in the 12 months through March, about 100,000 people. But if you put that in perspective, that kind of growth would be something like 7 million people in the United States or 29 million people in China. So I can imagine the kind of strain on resources that an influx of people would be. How are all these people finding places to live? What's happening to the housing market, to schools, to transportation, and so on? Well, certainly there's, there's a lot of pressure on uh, and about half of the immigrants the last year through March, it was about 72,000 net immigrants. Half of them are going to Auckland, which is our biggest city, and that's really starting to heave under the strain in terms of roads, um, the congestion, and the government has finally put its hand up in terms of spending on um, things like schools uh, and other infrastructure that's needed, but it's going to take a long time to get Auckland sorted. Um, on the other hand, there's there's plenty of space in other in other cities, but um, Auckland being the the place where most immigrants would see themselves more likely to get jobs, uh, it, it attracts a lot of them. But one of the one of the points about it, of course, is that the net immigration figure that we quote includes far fewer New Zealanders actually leaving leaving in the country. It's always been a rite of passage for young New Zealanders to leave the country, and they still do, but the last decade, thousands of New Zealanders would go to Australia, our big brother across the, 
the sea to to get jobs in in say the mining industry and and as that industry is slowed down then those people aren't leaving and many are coming back so four years ago for example a net 35,000 Kiwis you know New Zealand citizens left to go to Australia the the latest year there was uh, 1,500 so that's contributed a lot to the to the pickup in immigration and that the people just have not left. Sounds like a really sore spot for you, Dan. So, Tracy, let's <laughs> just take a step back. Uh, you've used uh, the term Kiwi a couple of times in this broadcast. Can you explain what a Kiwi is and what it's shorthand for? A, well, a Kiwi is, is our uh, a native flightless bird, which is um, nocturnal, so very few of us have actually seen one. But um, we've adopted that as our shorthand, or um, perhaps the world adopted it as a shorthand description for for New Zealanders. Um, as an aside, it's also what we refer to as our, our dollar. So the currency traders will will know that the the kiwi is a, is one of the top ten traded currencies. So it's just a little furry animal with no wings, really, Dan. Where are but- you going with this line of questioning, Dan? I'm just making sure that as this is a global podcast, you know, everyone knows what we're talking about. <laughs> New Zealand Tracy has also attracted some attention lately for a different kind of immigration. High net worth, very, very high net worth individuals setting up shop in New Zealand, fearful of the end of the world. Can you talk about that? I think there has been some of that. I mean, it's an accessible and as I said earlier, stable government, secure place um, with modern facilities. So um, as, as a, I think the word bolt hole has been used as a, as a place for um, high net worth people to come to from other parts of the world, either to holiday, uh, to have their remote lodge away from people, or... or for some, I, I guess it's also an option as a complete change of lifestyle. Um, either they clearly they would need to be able to continue their their careers here, or they may be in a in a stage where their careers um, are, are past. I think of someone like Tiger Fund founder Julian Robertson, who spends a lot of time out here and has built built resort lodges and, and high quality golf courses. Um, uh, James Cameron, the movie producer who is now living here with his family but is still making the next Avatar movie here in Wellington um, in conjunction with Peter Jackson's uh, Weta people. So it's got attributes uh, and uh, after all it's only uh, a short 15-hour flight back to the United States. And don't forget there is a connection with the United States and Trump here, the uh, founder of PayPal, Peter Thiel, who got his uh, New Zealand citizenship in 2011. Uh, that Was that a big story there, Tracy? Well, sadly, uh, it wasn't in 2011 because very few people knew about it. Um, it, it has sharpened the focus on whether it's too easy to get New Zealand citizenship. Um, that was a, an interesting story when it did emerge, the the idea that 
um, in his case, he was um, putting some seed money into some of our emerging uh, software companies. One of the, the highest profile one is Zero, which is an accounting software business that started here again in Wellington and is now growing rapidly and, and wanting to take on in, into it in, 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 uh, in the United States. I think we do prize our citizenship quite highly, and there were some people saying, uh, was it just being bought? Um, there's no real resolution to that question. So, Tracy, for those who cover central banking very closely, and let's face it, that's us, New Zealand had a unique role to play. Talk to us about that. Then the uh, New Zealand's inflation really got out of control in the late 1980s, and the government of the day um, felt that you know there had to be more discipline around the, the fight against inflation, and uh, they brought the Reserve Bank of New Zealand Act into play, which was was the first time a government uh, and its central bank had had legislated to for price stability. In a sense, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand became the pioneer inflation targeter. Of course, today it's a common common strategy that central banks have adopted around the world. But in those days, it was um, it was pretty unique. Uh, it set a really rigorous inflation target. It, it enshrined that the central bank would be independent of government it even went so far as to say that if the governor of the day failed to reach his target, his or her target, then um, the follow-through follow could be uh, termination of the, of the role. Of course, that never happened, but it certainly brought a discipline that uh, helped drag inflation way, way back as the 90s developed. And it certainly provided untold decades of central bank coverage, of fodder for Bloomberg central bank coverage all over the world as other central banks adopted inflation targeting schemes. And Tracy, as inflation has stayed low, not just in New Zealand, but really throughout much of the developed world, is New Zealand also playing a pioneering role in questioning the inflation target? I think we, we've discussed it. It's um, like as you say, like most central banks, we record out in New Zealand when uh, global inflation stayed remarkably low. And as we discussed earlier, a three percent growth rate the last three years, inflation has only just returned to two percent, which is the middle point of of the current range to the Reserve Bank targets. Our, our current governor, Graham Wheeler, who finishes his term uh, later this year, has been a staunch defender of inflation targeting. Some some opponents have argued that it's um, driven the currency higher than it should have otherwise been. Um, I, I guess that, that debate will go on, won't it? My favourite moment in recent New Zealand history was the Cricket World Cup final third delivery of the game, I might add, when, Tracy, what happened? Mitchell Stark bowled the New Zealand captain for zero, and it was basically all over. That sums it up, Dan. That's exactly what happened. I mean, you're drawing, you don't want to draw comparisons with the Rugby World Cup final when uh, the All Blacks managed to defeat Australia. Not at all. All right. Well, gentlemen, there's nothing like a good sports rivalry to uh, keep the conversation going forever, but we're going to have to end it there. Tracy, 
Thanks so much for joining us today. A pleasure. Benchmark will be back next week. And until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, our Bloomberg app, as well as on Apple Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, or wherever you might enjoy finding your podcasts. While you're there, take a minute to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us and let us know what you thought of the show. You can follow me on Twitter at, at Scott Landman. Dan, you are at Moss underscore Eco. And our guest, Tracy Withers, is at Tracy W. Withers. Benchmark is produced by Sarah Patterson. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Alec McCabe. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.